Hello, and welcome to Ideas Having Sex with Chris Kaufman. I'm Chris Kaufman, and each show I bring to you an interesting and provocative scholar to discuss topics in social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you enjoy what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. Hello and welcome to Ideas Having Sex. Today I am joined by author and journalist Jonathan M. Katz. Jonathan is the author of The Big Truck That Went By, How the World Came to Save Haiti and Left Behind a Disaster, as well as the book we are discussing today, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Jonathan, thank you for joining me. Hey, good to be here. So this book is primarily or largely a, you know, a biography of Smedley Butler, and you get to touch on a lot of issues in the course of going over his life. He is a super interesting figure to do a biography on because, one, he's inherently interesting because he's this prolific general who becomes something of an anti-war whistleblower late in his career, but also because his career is so long and storied, but it uniquely spans this time of like pretty underreported, underknown chapters in American foreign policy history. Like he does serve in World War One, but that is almost a footnote in his military career, it seems like. Everything else he's doing are these smaller, less known, and I don't necessarily want to say less savory. I mean, I think it's all pretty unsavory, but these are not the popular wars that he that he serves in. So just right off the bat, how did you come to be aware of his career and how did you come to write this book? To answer the second part, it was precisely because I realized immediately as I looked into Smedley Butler's life um, that he was this figure that could be used to tell this much bigger story. You know, his military resume included a bunch of, it consisted almost entirely, as you said, of wars that even pretty well studied, you know, I was a history major and an American studies major in undergrad. Um, I had, even in undergrad, I had been taking classes on and, and was pretty well versed in the unsavory parts, as you might, as you did say, about of American foreign policy, especially during the Cold War. But it wasn't until I became a foreign correspondent and moved to specifically the Dominican Republic and Haiti, that I started learning more about the things that had happened at the beginning of the 20th century. And that's really where I encountered Smedley Butler. So uh, when I was writing that first book that you mentioned, The Big Truck That Went By About the Earthquake uh, in 2010, um, I you know, wrote a chapter of that book that was a history of Haiti to explain how things had gotten so bad that a magnitude 7.0 earthquake uh, became the deadliest earthquake ever recorded in the Western Hemisphere, which is what it was. Um, and you can't talk about that without talking about the U.S. occupation of Haiti, uh, that the U.S. invaded Haiti in 1915, occupied it for 19 years, and then uh, in less formal ways, basically continued to control Haitian uh, politics and, and, and policy um, for decades after, including arguably up to the present day. Um, in a lot of ways. This is not to, to write Haitians out of their own story, but it's just to explain, you know, the ways in which uh, American hegemony and American desires have have manipulated and changed things and, and created the, the situation that, that exists on the ground there. And you can't talk about the U.S. occupation of Haiti without talking about Smedley Butler. So I actually encountered him, you know, people who know Smedley Butler, people who've heard the name Smedley Butler uh, in the United States generally know him because 
because of um, his later anti-war activism, his book, War is a Racket, um, his whistleblowing on the business plot to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt, which we could talk about. Um, but I hadn't heard of any of those things uh, for whatever reason. Um, the first place that I encountered him was in in Haiti. And, and it was only in doing sort of some background research uh, at that point when I was trying to figure out, could this guy, you know, serve some sort of narrative purpose in that book that I was writing, The Big Truck, which ultimately, by the way, he didn't. He appears in, in a single endnote, but he doesn't appear in the book at all. Um, that I realized that not only was he this key figure in Haiti, but he was a key figure in all these other occupations and uh, invasions and interventions that the United States had been involved in in the period. Um, and that because of that, you know, late in life, come to Jesus uh, moment that he had, uh, well, it wasn't one single moment, but but that that sort of, you know, uh, degree of, of introspection that he brought to his life in, in the last decade of his life. I realized as a writer, you, you can't ask for a better vehicle. You can't ask for a better character to, to tell the, the larger story that I was hoping to tell. Yeah, you described this really striking conversation with a Haitian who was asking why you were there and you're talking about how you're writing this book about to to expose Americans to this history that they're not familiar with. And he's like, what do you mean Americans don't know this history? How could they not know? Because this obviously looms very large in, or I, I say obviously, you tell me, I assume this looms very large in like the Haitian collective memory and it just is shocking. It was shocking to this gentleman that this is not known. And it's certainly not known. So you want to tell the story of that conversation a little bit more and, and talk about the U.S. role? Like, why were we there? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So it's interesting, actually. That scene um, in the book, it takes place, just so, so people know how, how this book is written, um, I traveled to all of the countries that Smedley Butler and his generation of Marines operated in the places that we invaded the places that we occupied um because really the book that i i, I wrote i mean in a lot of ways that the, the subtitle is you know smedley butler the marines and the making and breaking of america's empire sometimes i think i should have changed it to uh, you know smedley butler the marines and the and the, the remembering and forgetting of america's empire the memory of america's empire because really it is on the DL and not and, and often very much not so um it's really a book about historical memory um, about the things that we remember, about the things that we don't, about the things other people remember, about the things that they don't, and the ways that those memories are shaped and manipulated, and the ways that that, that the shaping and the manipulation of those memories changes us and and the way that we approach the world today in uh, the early now getting to be somewhat early mid, I guess, twenty um, first century. So that scene that you're talking about um, was actually, I believe, unless I'm forgetting something, it's the oldest scene that I'm involved in in in, in the book. It was it was it was the first the, the first piece of re reporting that I did, really specifically for the book that became Gangsters. Um, I was in Haiti as I often am, so I lived in Haiti from. Uh, 2007 to 2011, and then since then, I you know I've I've gone down you know on a fairly regular basis, either to you know visit friends or or, or do reporting or or you know just check in on the situation. Uh, I was touring an industrial park uh, called Caracol Industrial Park, which was built in the north of Haiti. So this was the biggest single intervention uh, in terms of dollars. I think it was. Uh, I think 200, 300 million dollars um, that the United States government poured into this industrial park in the north of Haiti. Um, this is the, the largest single intervention that the United States government made in the aftermath of the 2010 earthquake. 
Um, and it should be noted that the 2010 earthquake did not occur in the north of Haiti. It occurred in the south of Haiti um, in the capital Port-au-Prince. So this was away from the quake zone. Uh, but what the Americans wanted to do was we wanted to create a garment factory complex uh, because Haiti in the 1970s and 1980s, um, at the end of the Duvalier dictatorship, uh, the dictatorship of, of baby Doc Duvalier, who, who succeeded his father, Papa Doc, um, Haiti was a, a, a major hub. Its role in the American-run uh, uh, you know, global economic system was as a, uh, a, man a, a, a manufacturer, really an assembler of cheap goods, especially clothing. Back then, in the in, in the seventies and eighties, one of the one of the uh, headline examples that people often talk about is uh, that for at one point, all of the baseballs used in the U.S. major leagues were sewn in Haiti. Cabbage Patch Kid clothes were sewn in Haiti. Disney toys, things like that. The Obama administration was in power at the time. It was really the Clintons. Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, and her husband Bill, the ex-president, really had the you know most powerful uh, personal role in the reconstruction, the failed reconstruction from the 2010 earthquake. And what they really wanted to do is they wanted to get Haiti back to that. Um, and the scene that uh, I, that you're talking about in the book, unbeknownst to the Clintons and the Americans who put together this garment factory. It was built on the footprint of a slave labor camp that the Marines had run during the U.S. occupation of Haiti in, in the 19-teens uh, up through the 1920s and the early 1930s. The first occupation, right? Exactly, yes. And it just so happened that one of the really heroes of Haitian resistance uh, against the Americans, a guy named Charlemagne Perrault, um, who was assassinated by two Marines on Halloween night, 1919. Um, his body was buried at that slave labor camp, a place called Post Chabert, um, which is now Caracol Industrial Park. And uh, I snuck off the tour <laughs> that I was getting from um, the, the South Korean uh, garment manufacturer who was you know, showing me their, their very clean sweatshop that was non nonetheless a sweatshop. And I, I went off and, and found uh, the, the spot where Charlemagne Peralt had been buried. His body was was disinterred uh, when the U.S. occupation ended in 1934. Um, but there's there's still a, a a tumbled down concrete marker, um, which at least as far as the the workers there are, are concerned, that was the spot where where Charlemagne Peralt's body was buried. And they were still sort of going by and and sort of you know raising you know power salutes. And that was when I got myself in in this conversation with with one of the Haitian construction workers. I told him what I was thinking about doing because at that point I hadn't really started the book project. I was like, he was basically like, "What are you doing here, man?" And I was like, "Well, this is all in Haitian Creole." It's just a twinkle it, of, in your eye at this point. Exactly. And I was like, you know, yeah, I'm, I'm, thinking about writing a book about about um, American Empire and Smedley Butler and 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 Charlemagne Perrault and, and and the time that those guys lived, and uh, you know, to tell Americans who don't know about this stuff. And he says, you know, what the, what he actually said was, you know, I, I don't believe that. Um, you know, how, how is it possible for, for Americans not to know these things? And that and that really is what that's kind of it was that conversation that, that really kind of set me on on the path. And I was like, you know what, this is this is how I want to do this book. I want to 
I want to go places. I want to talk to people. And I, I don't, you know, I, I did want to do, and I did do, you know, original historical research and original archival research. Um, but in addition, I wanted to do the thing that I do, which is I'm a journalist. I go and I talk to people um, to, to understand what they remember, what they don't, what Americans remember and what we don't, and to put all those things in conversation with each other in a book. It also makes it more relevant to the present because you talk about contemporary issues when you you kind of cut back and forth between the book and in the places that Smedley Butler was. And then you tell the story of your writing the book, which also bears on current events. It's a really cool way of writing it. Thank you. I really appreciate that. It was I mean, that it was a struggle. Like, I'm not going to lie. Like that was it was a it was it was it was a hard thing to pull off. I'm pretty sure I pulled it off. It took a lot of editing and a lot of, you know, um, you know, just from a writing standpoint. You know, the, the the potential for the reader to just get completely lost in time. Um, you know, where am I? Like, what's what's going on? Am I in 19? Am I in 1915? Am I in, in, in 2017? Um, what's happening uh, was was real. Um, and that that took a lot of that took a lot of wrangling. Um, I think Sometimes, I got there. I think you did. Can you back up? This is the first American intervention. But it, was it the case that, that the United States had anything to do with even prior to this intervention, like uh, something to do with the Haitian Revolution, or at least, uh, you know, they, I know they were very concerned about it. And the Haitian Revolution kind of plays a, this boogeyman role in the Western Hemisphere in the countries that have slaves, because it's the example of a successful slave revolt. Yeah, that's so that's something I, I didn't really get it. I'm happy to geek out on it. I, I didn't really get a chance to, to dig into that um, in, in gangsters. Yeah, so the U.S., for people who don't know, um, Haiti was a, a colony, a French colony uh, called Saint-Domingue. Um, and it was the richest uh, sugar colony in the world. It was the richest uh, colony in the French empire. And basically in, in 1791, the, uh, the people of Saint-Domingue rose up. Um, it was a very, very complicated, very, very messy affair. Um, it, it, it actually really started with um, the white colonists uh, trying to to achieve home rule or, or or some degree of autonomy from France in the middle, which was at that point in the middle of, of the French Revolution. And it ends up uh, being that uh, because of the population dynamics and, and, and the sheer numbers, um, you know, the vast majority of people in the colony of Saint-Domingue are enslaved Haitians, or now Haitians, uh, enslaved Africans who rise up and, and end up uh, overthrowing French rule and, and winning their own freedom. And uh, the United States at that moment uh, is the only other independent uh, country in the Western Hemisphere, right? Because the, all, everything else in the Western Hemisphere is at that point colonized either by Britain, Spain, France, Portugal, uh, a little bit the Netherlands, yeah, Portugal. Uh, and so, you know, at various points during the Haitian Revolution, the Haitian, like the the headline version of the Haitian Revolution, is that it was a, a, a revolution against France. But all of the major powers are involved. So France, uh, excuse me, uh, Spain um, uh, invades um, that, that portion of the island at one point. Britain invades uh, Saint-Domingue at one point. Um, different people on the, the African uh, side uh, of, of the, the Haitian Revolution, what becomes the Haitian side of the Haitian Revolution, try uh, uh, 
allying with at various points uh you know the spanish spanish against the british and the french and the british against the spanish and the french uh the french against the spanish and the british and, and um Toussaint Louverture, who, who becomes obviously the uh the, the the ultimate leader of the haitian revolution um is is a, a french officer sorry are ahead. these are these major imperial powers that are intervening here is is their interest primarily just uh competition over you know colonial territory or is there also this you know, they don't want to see this bad example set of a homegrown revolution, especially a slave one, or I'm it, sure some of both. It's it's a mixture of both. So, I mean, at this point, Europe is descending into war. Over the course of the French Revolution, um, the French find themselves at, at war with, with Austria and Prussia and Britain and Spain um, and, and, you know, allying with uh, some of them against one another, et cetera. Um, but very much, uh, you know, the British especially um, are they're terrified of, you know, especially once the, 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 the slave revolt uh, becomes sort of the major story of, of this revolution. They're terrified about this spreading to their colonies. Um, you know, Jamaica is right across a, a, a very narrow band of sea from from Saint Domingue, from Haiti, um, and they're really worried about you know the same thing happening uh, on their watch. That that actually is what that's really what 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 propels them to invade. So the United States is actually a very kind of complicated because the United States is they're you know they're an independent republic. They actually, at various points along the way, um, are arming and allying with Toussaint Louverture and and the the rebelling slaves. Um, this is under uh, John Adams, um, who is, uh, he's an anti-slavery president. I, I wouldn't call him anti-racist. I wouldn't even call him necessarily abolitionist. He doesn't, doesn't want immediate abolition. Um, but, you know, th there was some sympathy. But he's a New uh, England man. He's a New Englander. The, New Eng and of course, you know, Boston uh, uh, merchants get very well, they, they make a lot of money off the slave trade. But the Boston merchants are also um, making, they're also looking at an opportunity. They, they make a lot of money off of trade with Saint-Domingue because it's this rich colony. You know, they're anti-French. Um, and so they're looking at this as an opportunity like, well, you know, maybe we can, instead of doing business with, you know, the French, Let's just do business with the Sandemangwa, like like these these you know these African rebels who are trying to to achieve home rule. That doesn't last for very long in in the American context. So so that is to say, and I don't talk about this at all in the book, just because like as you can already tell, these I, these rabbit holes get really really long. Sure, and I could I could go on about them, and it's forever. a good deal before the you know the time frame we're talking about. Exactly. But there is so so the the uh, the Marines intervene very briefly. Um, in Saint-Domingue during the Haitian Revolution um, on the side of the, the, the revolutionaries um, to basically, they're basically trying to keep British ships from uh, uh, carrying out a more uh, extensive invasion of Saint-Domingue, uh, which will interfere with the New England merchants' uh, dreams of trading directly with with Toussaint Louverture. This is um, all pre-Monroe doctrine, but this is kind of like presaging that. They're like, get out of here. This is yeah. our area of influence. But what ends up happening, okay, is that in 1802, um, the French reinvade. Because at this point, sort of, you know, Toussaint Louverture has achieved some degree of autonomy. 
by the way, if 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 I'm droning on too long about any of these things, just cut me off because I'm just like I just like hit these like folders in my brain and it's just like <laughs> open. No, no, I, no. I lo- I love this. I'm very interested in this. Keep okay, going. Well, so what ends up happening is um, the you know Napoleon, who has now come to power as first consul in in France, um, reinvades. Uh, he sends a, a, a huge expedition that's known as the Claire Expedition uh, because headed by a guy named Leclerc, um, to basically reimpose direct French control, direct, you know, Parisian control over this uh, recalcitrant colony and impose, reimpose slavery. Uh, because at this point, the, the, the Haitians have already won their, their freedom um, uh, over the course of, of this revolution. And, and, and Napoleon's like, no, um, uh, enough, enough of that. Um, and, uh, it's, they also kidnap uh, Toussaint Louverture. They arrest him. They take him back. He dies in, in a prison in, in the Alps. Um, and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, who was one of, of uh, Louverture's l- lieutenants, um, basically takes control of, of uh, the army. He names it the, 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 the uh, Armée Indigène, the, the, the indigenous army. And, and he basically is the one who they, re- they reclaim, speaking of, of historical memory, this idea of this place being called Haiti, which was a Taino word. So this is a word of the indigenous people who who were essentially wiped out by Christopher uh, Christopher Columbus and the Spanish yeah. um, in in 16th century. Uh, there is Jean-Jacques no is, there more or less is no native population of Haiti anymore. That's correct. It's all pretty much. Yeah. It's all uh Europeans and slaves brought over uh and their descendants. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah, the, the, it's been a, a, an almost, essentially a complete genocide. Um and um and and Jean-Jacques de Salines, um, who was himself, uh, uh, it is believed, born born in Africa, um, he 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 takes on this mantle of of Haitianness. Of he says, you know, I I, I and he and he says, um, you know, I I have I, I have avenged America is what he says when once once they they defeat Napoleon and and the the Leclerc, uh, the Leclerc expedition, um, and it's at this point that uh, de Salines and his army. Um, they uh, undergo somewhat of a of an ethnic cleansing campaign. They, they basically, you know, they basically root out all of the French uh, nationals um, who are still um, on Saint Domingue. Um, this is sometimes wrongly remembered as as a genocide of the whites. Um, it was not an anti-white crusade. Um, uh, whites who fought on the side of of the, the the Haitian Revolution, and there were there were many of them. Um, especially a, a a group of Poles um, who uh, Napoleon brought on. Uh, Napoleon basically grabs a bunch of Polish soldiers, uh, says, you're coming with us in, in, in the Leclerc expedition. Um, they get to Saint-Domingue and they're like, we're on the wrong side. <laughs> like we joined this, we joined Napoleon's army to fight for liberty um, because we see him as the embodiment of the French revolution. Um, we get to Saint-Domingue and they were like, the, the people who are fighting for freedom here are, 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 are black people. Like we're going to fight alongside them. And they're all granted Haitian citizenship. And just without putting too fine a point on it, uh, the, the Haitian revolution has been this extraordinarily bloody and, and, you know, uh, genocidal affair i mean uh the the you know uh leclerc um who who is the head of of napoleon's expedition um he he says that the only way for them to put this revolution down is for them to kill everybody over the age of like 12 um because they're like you know these people have too much of a taste of freedom in their mouths um if you know unless we get rid of them uh, we're never going to be able to bring this colony to heel and they and they do i mean there are these horrific 
Um, there are these horrific episodes of them just, you know, uh, grab uh, General Rochambeau um, just grabbing today. We, we we would call them Haitian men, Haitian revolutionaries, um, and women, and and you know, putting them in in boats with flour sacks around their neck and drowning them all at sea. Um, just just horrendous horrendous atrocities. And so it's in this context of atrocity that. Jean-Jacques Dessalines and, and, and the Haitians, they do this sort of, you know, kind of last atrocity. They're basically like, we will never be safe as long as we have French people in our colony. And they have a case that they can make for this. Uh, by this point, final independence is declared in 1804. And by this point, John Adams isn't president of the United States anymore. Thomas Jefferson is president of the United States. Uh, Thomas Jefferson is a slave owner. Um, he owns a plantation, which I can actually kind of see from my my, my window. I, I live in Charlottesville, <laughs> Virginia. Uh, it's just over that mountain over there. It's called Monticello. And he is terrified um, because he uh, has been looking at, at, at in horror at the at the events uh, going on in what he calls San Domingo, San Domingue, um, and is terrified of that happening. Um, to him in his bed at Monticello, um, and 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 he's terrified of, of what would happen if uh, if the enslaved Africans um, of of the United States took their cues from the Haitians and and tried to to achieve um, their own independence and their own liberty. And even then, it is there's a little bit of negotiation that goes on. But sort of long story short, the United States refuses to um, recognize uh, uh, the independence of Haiti. Um, no one rec- recognizes it uh, uh, until uh, basically the French at gunpoint imposes a um, uh, an indemnity. Uh, there was a, a series that was written about this in, in the New York Times earlier uh, this year in 2022. Some people may have read about it, um, but it's, it, it's, it's known as the double debt because uh, basically they say you're, you're going to pay us ultimately 90 million gold francs. Um, and then because you don't have the money to pay this, um, we are going to then impose a, a, an onerous a series of loans on you. So you'll then owe us that to repay, to, to basically extort money on behalf of the French plantation owners, the French enslavers, to basically pay them back for the, the freedom um, that the Haitians had, had won um, at, at, at the cost of, of, of many of their own lives and in their own blood. When was it paid back? Ultimately, it is paid back. So the principal on this is paid back in the 1880s. Um, but it ends up being the service on the debt ends up being finally paid back in 1947. So Haitian mm. independence is achieved in 1804. The final services on, on this is paid back in 1947. And not incidentally to the book that we are actually talking about here. Um, one of the pre- the major reason that the U.S. invades and Smedley Butler invades in 1915 is because those double debts, the debts that the that that had been taken out um, from these French banks to pay back the French um, at gunpoint, uh, in the late 19th century, those debts start getting transferred to American banks. So American banks start start offering loans to, that can be used to pay back the French loans. So essentially, ultimately, this debt is transferred to the United States. And in the early 20th century, Haitian politics is in chaos, largely because of these horrendous debts and because of this exclusion um, and and because of this inability to trade with the United States, with its its most powerful neighbor. Um, The United States only recognizes Haitian independence in 1862 as part of an act of war. It's it's because basically all the Confederates, uh, all the Southern uh, enslavers uh, who had opposed 
recognizing Haitian independence and sovereignty up until this point, they're all busy, you know, seceding. So now the North controls the the uh, Congress, and so you know they're like, well, as long as we're at it, we might as well we, we might as well um, recognize uh, Haitian independence. Why couldn't Haiti trade with the United States? Did we have like an embargo, a Cuba style yeah. embargo back then? Uh, basically, yes. Uh, Jefferson imposes a, a a kind of a formal embargo, a formal refusal to, to trade. Um, and this kind of goes back and forth. But I mean, essentially, uh, you know, the United States throughout the years leading up to the Civil War, um, it's it's controlled by, you know, what's known as the slave power. Um, and, you know, trading with trading with self-freed slaves. Um, is something that uh, they're not interested in doing. And it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? Because in order to keep Haiti poor, these embargoes and and, and these, these exclusions um, are meant to keep Haiti poor and it works. Um, and so Haiti does not develop, um, uh, you know, advanced industry. It does not uh, develop a, 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 a particularly robust um, export sector. Um, it is more robust even in the 19th century than it ends up being in the 20th century. Are they able to trade with other other countries or is there a similar concern and trade embargoes placed by like Latin American countries or other European powers? It's similar. So there is some trade going on with with Latin America. But, you know, I mean, again, this is the early 19th century, right? Uh, yeah. You know, now, now the early to mid 19th century. So it is much more onerous to, you know, transport goods, you know, back and forth to Europe. Um, and, uh, you know, so there is some trade trade going on. Um, the sugar industry, which is what made Haiti really rich in the first place, or what made Saint-Domingue really rich in the first place, never really gets reestablished. There's a coffee industry um, gets established, and there's some, you know, uh, trade in, in, in Haitian coffee. But the, but the other thing is that um, because of this debt <laughs> that the French have taken out, again, at gunpoint, um, uh, King Charles X, uh, you know, he, he, he has sailed um, gunboats into, into Haitian harbors and said, basically, either, either you sign on the dotted line and you work this deal out with me or we're going to reinvade. We're going we're gonna, to we're gonna bombard your, your, you from the coast. Um, uh, because of that, the French don't really have much of an incentive to trade because they're making all the money that they need just in, 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 in ransom. Like, like the Haitian, like Haitian presidents um, are, are loading up, um, you know, ships full of money um, to send it to France. Um, so they're getting plenty of money. You know, they're getting plenty of money that way. And, you know, the things that, that, that Haiti has to offer, you know, England can trade with its uh, colonies and then former colonies, um, et cetera. So there, there, there's some things going on. I mean, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to, to overstate the case. Like there is some trade, but Haiti just keeps getting poorer and poorer and poorer. And then ultimately its finances are in, a, in shambles. Uh, the French come in, uh, the, the, another Haitian president gives, gives a, a French bank, a, a charter to start a central bank. Um, they start then skimming off the top there. Um, and then as that bank starts getting reorganized in the early 20th century, American bankers uh, get involved, especially uh, Citibank, uh, as still Citibank today, um, then is known as the National Citibank of New York, but it was nicknamed Citibank even at the time. And uh, they take out a, a, a you know, partially controlling share in the central bank, of the, new, the newly uh, refounded Central Bank of Haiti in the early 20th century. Um, and in 1914, the Marines, uh, Smedley Butler is not among them, but the Marines come ashore 
um, and rob this central bank. They take out half of the gold reserves um, at this bank and bring them uh, to Wall Street um, for safekeeping uh, to ensure as, 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 as forced collateral, gunpoint collateral, um, to ensure the repayment of these debts. This sends you know, Haitian politics once again into a tailspin. And the big thing that Haitian presidents, uh, the big issue in Haitian politics at that moment um, in 1914, 19, and then what becomes 1915, um, is uh, whether they're going to cut a deal with the Americans to give the Americans control of custom houses. So basically, you know, the Americans have been doing this thing, and, and I talk about this a lot in gangsters because the Americans have been doing this in other parts of, of Latin America, especially, um, taking control of import-export houses, right? So because you control customs, um, you then get to, uh, uh, you get to, you know, first of all, you know, skim either officially or extra-officially um, off the top. Um, and it also- What, like tariffs? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and and essentially, um, they put countries in what is known as receivership. Um, the, the model for this actually happens on the other side of Hispaniola in the Dominican Republic under President uh, Teddy Roosevelt. But it's basically this idea of, you know, uh, traditionally up until this point, the idea of putting something in rec- receivership, you would put a, a railroad in rece- receivership, right? You would say that because the railroad doesn't have the money on hand, they don't have the cash reserves on hand to repay their debts for the loans that they've taken out. I, the bank, am going to take control of this railroad to basically make sure that the first, you know, every ticket that gets sold, the first cut of that ticket goes to me as the bank to repay my debts. And then the second cut goes to, you know, pay, you know, the the employees and the third cut, you know, gets whatever, right? Um, And the last cut of all, if there's a last cut of all, is is profit. So um, what happens is the United States in, in this period starts taking control of countries by taking control of their customs houses to make sure that every time, you know, a Haitian a bag of coffee goes, you know, out of a, uh, out of a port and a, and a tariff gets paid the first uh, uh, or, or, you know, this starts with the Dominican Republic with, with, with Nicaragua, et cetera. It's like you know, a wage the, the, garnish. Exactly. You know, so a Nicaraguan bag of coffee goes out of Nicaragua. First cut goes to the United States, right? Uh, a shipment of clothes, um, you know, sewn in, you know, whatever. In Spain comes to Nicaragua. Um, there's a tariff. That all, you know, first cut of that as much as we want goes to the United States. Are these going directly to like the treasury or are these replaying, repaying and servicing the loans that like Citibank has taken over? It's it's both. It depends. It depends on the it depends on the the, the specifics. Je- often it was the banks. Um, but these banks are, you know, they're just an arm of like the state department or something at this point, it seems like they're hand in glove. I mean, it's, it's sometimes it's hard to say, you know, who's controlling who, yeah. um, but, 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 you know, it's, it's, it's what, it's what Bill Clinton would call a public private partnership. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, so, so, uh, these are known as controlling loans, right? Um, so, you know, uh, the, the first of the controlling loans is to Honduras, uh, JP Morgan, um, and so actually, that point is actually John Pierpoint Morgan, but it's Morgan and Company, um, still around today, right? Uh, Morgan, uh, J.P. Morgan Chase. Uh, you know, J.P. Morgan basically, basically, the United States comes in. They say, okay, uh, we want to control Honduras. So what we're going to do is we're going to take over their financial system and we're going to issue a loan. And then it, under the pretext of them being now forced to pay back this loan, 
we are going to send the Marines. We're going to send force. We're going to send you know, naval ships um, or the threat of, of further invasion um, and basically say, you know, you need to pay back J.P. Morgan. Right. And so what's happening in night. And so, you know, these are all this is a way of getting into the like the things that I'm talking about. These, you know, this is basically you know, chapters, you know, eight through whatever it is, 16 of the book. What's happened in 1914 is uh, this has become the main issue in Haitian domestic politics. Are we going to turn our customs houses over to the Americans? Because the Americans are knocking on the door. They're like, do this. Like, you're in debt. Will we, we we've got a great debt restructuring program for you, um, you know, called JG Wentworth. Um, uh, we, we've got, we've got a great idea for you. Give us control of your customs houses. Um, and we will, we will restructure your way out of debt. I mean, as anyone who's ever dealt with a predatory lender can tell you, like, you know, read the fine print and there, but there were some Haitians, there were some Haitian politicians at the time that were like, look, we can't pay our bills. We are, we are so, we are, we are up to our, 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 our eyeballs in debt to everyone going back to this, you know, revolutionary debt, uh, the, 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 this, this indemnity that the, that the French imposed on us, uh, you know, coming out of our revolution in 1804, um, you know, maybe like, maybe we can work something out. Maybe we can do this in a way that will enable us to keep a little bit of sovereignty or maybe they can do it in a way that will let me personally, as the next president of Haiti, um, you know, uh, um, you know, hold my head up higher or, 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 or get a little money on the side or whatever. Right. And this is the main, this is the main issue. Once the Marines staged this daring daylight bank robbery of the Haitian central bank, all of a sudden, uh, you know, a, a Haitian president is forced to resign out of, out of shame for, for having sort of, you know, been in charge while this happened. And another Haitian president comes to power. And this Haitian president is somebody who's a little bit o- open to the idea of like, well, maybe we can work something out. Maybe we can do like some, maybe you can, so, and they don't, and, and other Haitians don't like this. And so other Haitians um, start to, you know, foment against this president um, a, 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 a basically a force uh, arises. The way Haitian politics works in these days is you have a president and then you have the people who want to get rid of the president and the people who want to get rid of the president raise an army basically in the north of Haiti to march on, on Port-au-Prince in the south. Um, and one of these armies is moving toward Port-au-Prince and this president rounds up people who he thinks are, are, are sympathetic to this force that's going to overthrow him. And he, and he, he kills all of, of their children. Basically he rounds, he rounds them up and he, and he, and he, and he, and he, and he kills these, these young men. And because these young men are um, the, uh, the, the sons of privilege they're the sons of some of the most powerful uh, people in the Haitian elite, they don't like this, so the the Haitian elite and they they raise a mob. They go, they they uh, uh, basically kill the president um, and 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 you know literally rip him to pieces. And Woodrow Wilson is president of the United States at this moment, and he uses this moment as a pretext um, to stage a full outright invasion of Haiti in, in 1915. And just to let you know um, how Wait, much- I, of a thought, pre- I thought Woodrow Wilson kept us out of war. <laughs> what am I missing? He runs on that, right? Yes. He, he runs on that, but he, but uh, he's the only, then as now, really the only war that you can get, get, get Americans to pay attention to um, are, are wars in Europe. Um, yes. But, but so, uh, uh, and of course he doesn't end up even keeping us out of that one, but that's, that's, that's a, 
that's another chapter of the book. But anyway, all, all that is to say um, that, you know, just to give you a sense of, of, of how much of a pretext this was, the invasion happens literally the day after the assassination because there are, there's already a, a warship um, off the coast of, of, of Haiti. It's, it's the USS Washington. It's, it's, they're, they're ready to go. And are there um, Marines in the country already too? Uh, there, this well, there are there are so so there there are Marines on board the USS Washington. Okay. So so when the the USS Washington basically uh, steams from Cap Haitien in the north, which is where that uh, uh, garment factory that I visited was, um, it, it goes down to, to Port-au-Prince, which is the capital, which is where the earthquake happened. Um, and they 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 they, they di- the Marines disembark again, um, and and they take the capital. Um, and then a, a larger invasion force um, sets out, and that larger invasion force is what includes Spedley Butler. That was a great tour of Haiti and all of the seedy and interesting bits of history, and that takes up a good chunk of the book, and it's and it's super interesting. But that's just one chapter in his in his career, um, and he is, spends a lot of time in uh, Central America and Latin America in in what's called like the Banana Wars or. If, you know, if you've heard the term banana republic, like basically a lot of it seems like a lot of foreign interventions that maybe not more so, but at least more nakedly than other foreign interventions seem to just be be being done at the behest of major business interests to make sure that their plantations and banking interests in these countries are safe and running smoothly. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think that's probably true you know, of plenty of other military interventions, but it's, it seems much more nakedly true in these cases. Yeah. But he's also in other places too. So he's in, he's involved in the Boxer Rebellion in China. Can we prioritize maybe talking a little bit about the Boxer Rebellion and his experience in China and the Veracruz incident? I think these are, these are two things I'm really interested in talking about, whichever you want to hit first. Yeah, we'll just take them in order. So uh, the Boxer Rebellion happens first uh, in, in chronologically, it happens in 1900. Um, basically, the Boxer Rebellion happens in, in China. Um, Americans have been uh, looking uh, lustily at China, as has much of the Western world, um, for, for a long time. Um, just as today, people just look at a map, they see the, the, the population uh, a total of China, and they just think, man, if I could just sell you know, 1% of those people my cigarettes or my necktie or my app, um, I'll be rich. And that that that's an idea that that never dies. It's still with us today, and it was with us back then. Um, what happens is um, that a lot of American imperialism is really centered around the Pacific. Even these things that we're talking about in Haiti, in a lot of ways, it, it has to do a lot with the Pacific because uh, it was all about it, the, the Haitian intervention was all about trying to, to among other things, uh, protect a sea lane to the Panama Canal. Uh, which the Americans built. And that's another thing that, that Butler is involved in is, is, is severing Panama from, from Colombia for the purpose of that. And the purpose of the, of the Panama Canal is it allows countries and navies that are mostly based in the Atlantic, as was the United States' at the time, to t- travel quickly to the Pacific without having to go all the way down uh, South America. And the point of getting to the Pacific is ultimately China. It's ultimately to get uh, merchant ships and warships to be able to travel quickly and and without uh, harassment uh, to this great, imagine limitless market of China. So what happens in 1900 uh, is 
Uh, it actually starts a, a, a couple of years before. Um, but there, is, there has been imperialism in China um, going back to the Opium Wars of the early uh, 19th century, in which some individual Americans um, have been involved. You know, political dynasties, um, a lot of the, the great fortunes are made um, basically in narco trafficking, uh, smuggling opium into China. Because that's, by the way, what the opium wars were about. It was about it was about forcing it was about um, Britain forcing legalized opium trade in China. And exactly. it, it's ugly on all counts because because it finally becoming illegal doesn't result in anything very pretty either. Right. Um, exactly. Anyway, exactly. go on. Yeah. So. Um, uh, but as a as a result of of essentially the opium wars um, and other other you know late nineteenth uh, century wars and 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 interventions on the part of a, a number of imperial powers, um, China is starting to get a little bit gobbled up along its Pacific uh, Pacific coast, and there are missionaries um, in uh, China's central plains, especially in, in Shandong and Shanxi province, and. Basically, Chinese peasants, you know, farmers, they go through, there's there's a horrendous drought and famine, and uh, they blame it um, both for real and also just sort of, you know, mystical and, and you know, somewhat imagined um, reasons on these foreign uh, uh, imperial incursions and interventions because they've got these foreign missionaries um, in their midst and they're going hungry and you've got these, you know, weirdos, you know, with their weird religion um, you know, doing their thing in their weird language and God knows what. And there's st- um, there's still, I think, on the part of China coming to terms with the, the idea that these powers in Britain aren't just backward barbarians, like they're a force to be reckoned yep. with in a way yep. that's really conflicting with their self-image of being exactly. like this great empire. The Middle Kingdom, Zhang yeah. Guo. And um, so basically, a, like a peasant rebellion breaks out against the missionaries, against the foreigners. Um, and this is what's known as the Boxer Rebellion. It's called the Boxer Rebellion, by the way, because they're doing martial arts, but Westerners don't know what, they don't know what Kung Fu is. So they just, they're like, oh, they're boxing. So they call the boxers. Yeah. Um, and the the uh, imperial dynasty uh, that, that runs China at the time, the Qing dynasty, um, they're also angry uh, for many reasons about the, these, you know, imperial encro- encroachments um, on their sovereignty and on, on their coast. Um, and so even though at the beginning, the Boxer Rebellion is somewhat against the, the Qing dynasty, um, they, they are able to sort of co-opt it and 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 band with it. Um, and so, so it ends up being basically a... a a war against um, the foreigners who, because the foreigners invade, right? So uh, it's, it's known as the eight power allied army, um, Britain, France, Germany, Russia, uh, Italy, Austro-Hungary, Japan, and the United States. This can still rattle them off. Um, <laughs> uh, they, uh, in 1900, invade, uh, again, on, on the pretense, this is a word that comes up a lot in, when you're talking about imperialism, on the pretense of protecting their nationals, right? Because you've got these boxers, uh, you've got these, you know, uh, fighters um, who are, they really are, um, um, you know, they're, 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 they're attacking uh, foreigners, foreign missionaries. Uh, actually, the main victims of them, in, even in Guangdong and Shanxi province, are Chinese Christians, uh, Chinese people who have either been Christian for a long time or who have recently converted to Christianity. They're the, they're the ones who are really, you know, bearing the brunt of this. Um, but uh, uh, on the pretense of protecting uh, the foreigners, 
um, this is an opportunity for them to finally achieve their dream of of opening, you know, basically, you know, cracking open China's market um, and 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 grabbing it for themselves. And and everybody wants wants in, and that this includes the United States. Um, and Smedley Butler happens to be in the area because um, the other thing that's happened uh, up to this point. Uh, is that uh, in the Spanish-American War, which is the thing that really kind of sets off this wave of American empire and and Smedley Butler's career. Um, Butler is first at in Cuba at a little spot called Guantanamo Bay. He then goes to the Philippines, which is another Spanish colony, which the Americans uh, fully colonize. And he and the Marines are based in the Philippines when this uh, new uh, I- invasion of China happens. So they're right there on hand. They, they, they just uh, pop up right, right up the, the South China Sea um, and they they invade and Smedley Butler and and uh, the Marines participate in this um, eight power Allied forces still known known in China um, to basically crush the Boxer Rebellion um, to um, uh, severely weaken um, uh, the, uh, the 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 Qing government uh, the Qing Dynasty um, and uh, in the process to um, achieve. Um, another indemnity. We were talking about indemnities uh, in, in in Haiti with France. There's another imperial indemnity um, in in China, it's known as the Boxer Indemnity, um, which basically forces the Chinese government um, to make reparations. Um, it's, it's just ransom um, for to, what to, the boxers did to foreign nationals and property or whatever. I mean, it's not calculated like that. It's just like it's just it's it's just. I mean, it's really it's it's, it's almost a you know it's almost a medieval form of war. It's just like. We we won the war, you know. You pay us, yeah. Um, and this is a thing that happens, and I mean, it still happens to a, set, a certain extent today. It's dressed up uh, more today, yeah. Well, it ends up being somewhat discredited because of of you know, because of Versailles, because of 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 of, of the way that the, the reparations that are that are forced to be How paid badly by the Germans that works out. Yeah, it, it doesn't it doesn't go well. So, um, can you yeah. clarify? I think you said this, but the the boxers were primarily were they primarily. Re- rebelling only against foreigners or they were also upset at the Qing government. It's it, there, there's a subtlety here. And and you see this a lot in rebellions in monarchies. Um there is often uh, you saw it frankly in in even in in the Haitian revolution just to bring it back to that again. You get rebels who rebel against they rebel against the the sitting government but they rebel in the name of sort of a a greater loyalty to a true monarchy this is the case Uh, with i think like al-qaeda and some of the some modern islamic groups like that that are you know they're very down on the the local uh arab tyrannies and stuff but also you know in the name of them bringing in foreign ideals and things like that right exactly so you had like I mean, I, I don't mean to keep bringing it back to Haiti, but it's, it's an <laughs> example that's out there. Like, so, like at the beginning of the Haitian Revolution, um, when Toussaint Louverture and, and and his fellow generals are are when they're rebelling, when the slaves are are, are rebelling, they are saying that th- because this is happening during the French Revolution, they're rebelling against the French Republic in the name of loyalty to the deposed uh, Louis the Sixteenth. Because there's no chance of Louis XVI actually coming back to power, but because they're like, well, we're loyal to him, we're loyal to the true king, um, we're going to gain our freedom this way, right? So you see a sort of a similar thing that happens during the Boxer Rebellion, where where um, I'm just going to use the word boxers for 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 for, for simplicity's sake. Um, they didn't call themselves that; they call themselves the Yihetuan. But the but the but the boxers are saying like, you know, um, our like the governor of our province is a tyrant. We hate him. Um, 
we are going to rebel against him, but we are doing so out of true loyalty to the to 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 the emperor, right? Um, and 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 the way that they they phrase this at the time is um, they say that they're going to revive, they're going to revive the Qing, right? That the that the Qing dynasty has become weak, the Qing dynasty is corrupt, um, and and we are going to we are going to restore the true Qing dynasty. Again, this is something that you see a, a, as a pretense a lot. And so the Qing are able, the, the, the Empress Dowager, who's the real power in, in in China. There has been an attempt at a reform. I talk about this a little more more in the book, but there's been an attempt at a reform um, in China. Um, and and the Empress Dowager wants nothing to do with it. So she actually orders the kidnapping of the emperor, who is her nephew, um, but has far less power than she does. Um, and she wants to basically do, she wants to go, you know, full on, um, you know, autocracy, monarchy uh, model again. Um, and so she looks at this and she says, you know, I can work with this. Like it's, it's, it's a, it's a little bit dicey because they're, they're killing my ministers and, and they're, they're like, you know, it's, you know, they're saying, you know, they're saying that they're doing this out of loyalty to me, but they're actually like, they're actually like executing people who work for me and they could end up executing me if they get too much power. But, you know, she kind of looks at the whole situation and she says, you know, yeah, they're, they're executing my ministers. But on the other hand, uh, these Westerners and the Japanese um, are invading from the coast, um, and these the, the people who are executing my ministers are also anti-foreigner, and they're also doing it in the name of trying to trying to make my dynasty great again. I can work with this, and so she ends up sort of allying with them. It could have this is the, the, all of these things in history. All of these things are are uh, they're they're all contingent. Yeah, I, it is, could have is, gone. Is you could picture use. it going either way. Yeah, it, it, these are all messy, and I mean, this is the thing. This is the thing about history, and this is one of the things that that, that makes it makes history fascinating, and it, it makes all of these things that we're talking about um, so 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 ripe for for conversation. Um, is that you know. Uh, None of it's inevitable. All of these things can go in, in lots of different directions. Um, the, the, the ones that happen are just the ones that happen to be the ones that, that happened. <laughs> so what ultimately and centrally is is likely the main reason why the, the U.S. is involved here, just, just to protect any particular uh, business interests or just the fact that there are Americans there? Or- yeah, it's, it's, because, it's because this is the big goal. Because so, I mean, this goes back to, you know, manifest destiny. Um, America has this conception of itself, um, and it's a conception that comes and goes. And at this moment that we're talking about, 1900, it is it is coming. Uh, that basically that the only way that America can be strong, uh, and the, the only way that Americans and, and that American capitalism can can stay solvent is to constantly be growing. Right. I mean, this is still something we see today. Um, you see it with with Twitter, right? It's why it's why the shareholders d- demanded, like, you know, we have to we have to we have to keep growing. It's it's not enough that we're this you know big influential platform that has you know whatever it was a half a billion you know users. Um, it ha- we have to have more because you always have to have more because if you're not growing, you're dying. This is the way that 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 Americans think is the way that the capitalists think, and so the idea is like. We need we need access to the world's biggest potential market. We need land, uh, you know. So we need to colonize the Philippines. We need to we need to colonize the, the, these islands in the Caribbean, um, and we need to do all these things with with a goal of of extending our market reach, extending our market reach, extending our market reach. And so there are specific businesses in 1900 um, that that are that are interested in this. 
um, British American Tobacco. Uh, it's a big uh, uh, tobacco cigarette company um, uh, based in in North Carolina. Duke University. That that's that's the Duke family. James Buchanan Duke was was the head of of, of the company at the time. Um, you know, within a couple of years, it ends up being Standard Oil. Um, the banks want to be doing business here. I mean, everybody looks at, still again, still today. Everyone looks at China as like. Oh my God! There's so many people there. We can make so much money. Yeah. So bigger, um, bigger yeah. picture. You have yeah. you have a crisis going on, and and any plausible any plausible reason for the U.S. military to be there and to maybe expand our influence there yeah. is taken because bigger picture access to this gigantic and lucrative market is important. But it's not as if I mean I'm thinking like, is it obvious to the United States that you know? The, the Boxer Rebellion going one way or another is going to be better for our influence or business interests? Or is it just, here's a reason to get involved to make sure that we have influence however things shake out? Here's what they were really afraid of. What they were really afraid of, I think they, I, they had a sense that this thing was going to get crushed, okay? I mean, for, you call it, you know, racism, uh, call it, you know, whatever. Like, But they, they were just sort of like, China's weak. They're, 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 they're done for. Like, they're, they're going to be done. What they were really afraid of was that Britain and France and Germany and Japan uh, and Russia, especially those guys, also Italy and Austria-Hungary, but those, those were slightly lesser uh, players at the table at the time. They were really afraid that they were going to come in and that they were going to make back. Because what America, American policy toward China at this moment is what is known, and some people might remember this from their high school you know, history classes, um, as the open door. Right. The, the, the open door policy, what the Americans wanted at the time, because the Americans in 1900 didn't have any illusions that we would that the Americans would be able to defeat, you know, Britain. Right. In a war like, you know, for, for over China. Right. So. So, you know, the, they were afraid that the British were going to make China into a British colony, essentially. Right. That the, Brit you know, the British would, would do to China what the British had done to India. Right. Or that the Russians, because Russia's right there on the border. Right. That the Russians would come in and they would just dominate half of China and become extremely wealthy. Or that Japan, which is this rising force on the other side of the Pacific from us, um, you know, Japan has already, they've already seized um, the island of Taiwan. They call it Formosa. And they're like, well, you know, if, if Japan came in and Japan, if, if they took over, then they would become too powerful and we wouldn't be able to compete against them. That's what the Americans are really afraid of. Um, and, and they talk very openly about it. You know, they, 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 they talk about, uh, you know, that the eagles are, are, are coming to, to devour, you know, the, 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 the carcass of China. Um, and, and that's really what they, that's really what they want. They, 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 they aren't worried about China. They're, they're worried about the, they're worried about their rivals getting stuff that they think ultimately they're going to be able to profit from and they're going to be able to ultimately use to, to uh, enlarge American power. I think we'll actually skip the Veracruz incident. You're going to have to buy the book. It's a great book. Read that. Yeah. But will you give a teaser? There's just too much red meat here to skip <laughs> it entirely. Can you just give like a teaser uh, about what the business plot is. Yes, this yes. is this is too interesting to skip over entirely. Yeah, and uh, the, the thing is that all of these things they sound they sound all very different. Um, and especially once you go down the rabbit holes, as we've been doing here, it's it sounds like what the hell are they talking about? We're in Haiti, we're in China, we're we're now about about to talk about a fascist coup to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933 and 1934. But these things are all directly connected. So. <laughs> 
What I'm going to say is I'll give you the very you know brief version of it. 1933, 1934, Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, has come to power as president of the United States. Uh, the United States is in the, in the in the worst years of the Great Depression. Um, and Roosevelt is starting the New Deal. Um, that basically he's going to leverage the power of the United States government to help lift Americans out of poverty. A controversial concept in 1934, a controversial concept in 2022. Um, and at, then as now, um, wealthy capitalists look at this and they are like, oh my God, this is socialism. Um, he's going to turn America into a Bolshevik country. He's going to turn us, he's going to turn it into a communist country. And essentially a representative of one of the major um, banking houses or one of the major financial houses on Wall Street uh, approaches Smedley Butler to oversee a coup uh, that he's going to lead a column of half a million World War I veterans uh, into Washington, D.C., armed uh, to surround the White House, intimidate Franklin Roosevelt into either resigning um, or delegating all of his effective powers into the hands of a cabinet secretary who the coup plotters would name, um, and that this uh, cabinet secretary, uh, uh, the Secretary of General Affairs, uh, would then become effectively uh, the chancellor of, and then you know the fascist dictator, the first fascist dictator of of the United States. And and just very briefly, just to explain like why Smedley Butler and why all these things fit together, it's because Smedley Butler had been doing things like this all over the world. He had been overthrowing democracies at the behest of very powerful American capitalists and bankers. Um, and and people who were people who were afraid of of too much self rule, too much democracy, um, you know, to, things that 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 reminded them too much of socialism, um, happening elsewhere. That's why they that's why they uh, approach him. Um, and I guess you got to read uh, Gangsters of Capitalism to find out what happens next. Yeah, exactly. Has there been any interest um, that you're aware of in in turning this book into a movie or a docuseries or anything like that. I mean, just his life is, is so interesting. I think it should be. My, I, I do. There's been a little bit of, of, of talk on the margins. One thing that happened over the course of the last year is that uh, David O. Russell uh, did a movie called Amsterdam, which I saw, not a whole lot of other people did. And in the, the sort of B story, I would say spoilers, but it's not a great movie. I wouldn't <laughs> but like like the the um uh the, the B story of that movie is the business plot essentially. I mean it's a very screwed up ahistorical wrong version of it. Um and Robert De Niro plays essentially Smedley Butler. They gave him a fictitious name, but but he's yeah. he's, he's he's very overtly um uh, modeled on Smedley Butler. I I you know on the one hand maybe that's wedded some appetites. On the other hand, I I worry that that might have. Um, convince people that uh, uh, this is a bad idea since this movie you know, didn't turn out great. But I think the real sure. story, for my money personally, I think a limited you know, series on Netflix or Hulu or HBO or, or whatever, Smelly Butler at Guantanamo, Smelly Butler in the Boxer Rebellion, yeah. Smelly Butler in Haiti, Smelly Butler in Veracruz, et cetera. And then, you know, do the business plot sort of, uh, you know, I, I would watch, I'd watch the hell out of that. Perfect um, cat but, plot. Uh, and then he yeah. ends up writing his book, you know, War is a Racket and basically exactly. confess to the all these horrible crimes one question about the business plot because sure. I, I understand it's you know there's some controversy about just you know how, mu how much evidence there is for for its existence beyond smedley butler's testimony and you know some circumstantial evidence i think but yeah here's here's one question i have 
they claimed there was going to be 500,000 troops. Is mm-hmm. there, I mean, that's a lot of people. I, I assume they didn't all know about the plot, but someone was confident that they had 500,000 troops who would be willing to go along with something like this. Is there any, any corroborating evidence of that, of like who some of these troops or lower level people might've been and if anyone else was aware? All right, so here's, here's, here's how I'll answer the question. I have no doubt, um, and, and, and the congressional committee that, that, that Butler testified, uh, they were pretty of, confident that it was mostly, he was telling the truth, right? Yeah, they, they had no doubt that he was telling the truth and it was, it, it's very plausible. You know, the, the limited amount of corroborating evidence, uh, that, that they were able to, uh, look for, or that they allowed themselves to look for corroborated up to the level that, that it was able to, um, Butler's testimony. Um, basically, you know, the, the the guy who is is the middleman who tries to recruit him testifies, and you know he denies parts of it, but essentially he confirms all of the relevant all of the the relevant uh, pieces of of the story. You know where he met, you know the the the, the places he was traveling in, in the meantime, um, even the things that they talked about. What we don't know is a we don't know how far along the planning for this had gotten. The names of the people who who can be you know sort of reasonably talked about as being sort of on the outskirts of this thing are members of of uh, what were known as the American Liberty League, which was essentially a interest group uh, founded by um, Irene Dupont of of the of Dupont Chemical Corporation, uh, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, uh, Al Smith and and John W. Davis, who were two anti-New Deal former Democratic candidates for for president of the United States, a number of other sort of big uh, uh, you know figures in American business, and this middleman tells Butler that the American Liberty League was going to provide the financial backing for this thing. I lay out this case in the book. We don't know, however, like the extent to which you know Irene Dupont like had you know actually said to somebody like, hey, you know, let's let's this is a great idea. Let's do a coup or if he had been approached or how far along the planning had gotten. It's possible that this was an extremely embryonic stage. It's also possible that, you know, things were, you know, who knows, maybe, you know, almost ready to go. And then when, and then when Butler, you know, testified that, that, that it all fell apart. What I would say about, you know, manpower, there were a lot of, you know, soldiers, a lot of veterans, you know, running around. I mean, there, there, were, there was a, a large deployment, suffice it to say, um, to, to uh, World War One. At that point, it was just the World War because um, the second one hadn't happened yet. Um, and a lot of them were members of veterans organizations. And what gets talked about um, in, in Butler's testimony and in, in, in sort of the, the investigation that goes on around this, this coup um, is that the American Legion uh, would be involved. And there's a lot of reason to think that the American Legion, so the American Legion is a major veterans organization, still is today. Um, and there's a lot of reason to think that the American Legion would be sympathetic to this sort of thing. It's a very right-leaning reactionary organization, um, especially at the time. Um, Amer- legionnaires uh, were often involved in strike breaking. Um, they were often, you know, if 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 uh, you know the, the the Communist Party of the United States would be out in the street, um, you know, uh, uh, protesting against this or that, the American Legion would come out and 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 you know crack their skulls. Um, the the Legion, the, the American Legion, looked up to um, fascists. Um, they were big fans of Benito Mussolini. 
Um, there, uh, I talk about this in the book, but in you know at their annual conventions, they would uh, read a, a, an annual greeting uh, from a fellow injured veteran of the wounded veteran of, of the Great War, um, His Excellency, you know, Signor Mussolini. Um, they invited Mussolini to speak uh, at at the convention. I think it was 1930. You know, the idea that and and by the way, the guy who comes to to uh, try to recruit Smedley Butler. Uh, Gerald C. McGuire is, in addition to being a bond salesman at this uh, 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 Wall Street Financial Institution, Grayson uh, M.P. Murphy and Company, he's also a legionnaire. He's also a member of the American Legion. He's, he's a veteran of the war. Um, he was he was a, a naval veteran. So, you know, all of that is to say it is conceivable that if things had, you know, continued developing um, and, you know, everybody sort of, you know, turned their keys um, that you could see an organization like the American Legion, which is already capable of, you know, bringing legionnaires out into the streets to, you know, crush strikes that they could say, you know, come to Washington. What did Trump say? It'll be a, it'll be a wild time. Something like yeah, that. Yeah, that's something like that could happen. You know, so who knows? And the, the, the last thing I'll say about it is that, you know, that the reason why we don't know, you know, wh- whether it was the extent to which uh, this was actually in the offing is because there wasn't a full investigation. The press laughed it off. Um, and Congress, even though, you know, there was this you know, brief investigation by uh, the committee that actually ends up becoming the House American on Activities Committee, HUAC, it's a very brief and very cursory investigation that only lasts for a couple of weeks and there's no follow-up. Um, so, you know, as I say in the book, in the absence of a larger investigation, um, it's hard to say. But um, maybe that this, as, as they say in a scientific paper, those are, those are avenues for future research. Do you have any recommendations for books or authors or articles that you think would complement this work particularly well? Oh, yeah. There's a great book uh, that came out a year or two ago um, by a guy named Vincent Bevins called The Jakarta Method. It's about U.S.-sponsored anti-communist terror um, during the Cold War. Um, but it talks about it's it's in some ways it's kind of a sequel, even though it came out before, but it's about a you know, later period of time. Um, to gangsters, um, because um, uh, he, he, you know, he, he talks about uh, he, he talks about the ways in which you know through um, both formal and informal methods of control of uh, the United States is using client states in places like Indonesia and Brazil, especially um, to sort of you know carry out its dictates, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 that builds on on. Um, uh, that builds on 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 the things that I'm talking about, um, and then it, to, to take it all the way up to to the, to the present day, um, uh, another book by a friend of mine, which which people may have heard of, called um, Reign of Terror, um, by Spencer Ackerman. Um, that's about um, that's about the war on terror, um, and that talks that. So ultimately, it's about you know the 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 uh, the exercise of American empire and of American power um, in in the more recent decades. Um, and, and I, um, I, I definitely drew, I don't know if I drew on reign of terror, but I was definitely, I was definitely thinking about those things and Spencer's reporting um, when I was writing uh, gangsters and, and, uh, if I didn't read it at the time, I've, I've certainly read it and it's a really great book. I'll throw another one in there. Uh, I don't know if you've, if you've checked out Stephen Kinzer's book overthrow, mm, yeah. it, that just details like 13 different times the U S government has, uh, overthrown foreign governments from, you know, most of the last century and a little bit beyond. Yeah. I've not met uh, uh, Kinzer in, in real life, but I, I I encountered a lot of his books during my research. I think he's very much of a, of a kindred spirit to, to me, to the things that I was interested in, frankly, the things that Smedley Butler was interested in. 
Yeah, I, I had him on the show a while back to talk about one of his um, newer books about the the guy who ran MK Ultra in the CIA. Because yeah. in writing a lot of these books, he's touching on a lot of CIA projects, and uh, he stumbled on this particular character who's very underknown and kind of secretive, and wrote a biography of him. But yeah. I knew about him originally because I read Overthrow and. Uh, the True Flag is another great book by him that's kind of tells this story of a pivotal moment in U.S. foreign policy history, you know, a kind of debate between a more non-interventionist kind of pacifist vision of the American Republic and a more grandiose uh, imperial vision and mostly mostly uh, illustrated through this debate between Mark Twain representing the non-interventionist side and Teddy Roosevelt representing the imperial side. Yeah, exactly. It's about historical contingency. And he's, again, as, as we've been talking about throughout the conversation, like nothing, nothing is faded. All, like, you know, sometimes people have an op- a, a, a tendency to, to look at history or to look at current events and say like, oh, we know what's going to happen. This is inevitable. And, and, you know, maybe on a, you know, on the scale of like the heat death of the universe, you can sort of make, you know, ultimate predictions like that to some extent, but, you know, in the interim term. Um, on the scale of years and decades. Yeah. yeah. Things can, take, things can go in wildly, wildly different directions. So the two books you mentioned, um, as well as yours, I will put on the show notes page. I'll, I'll throw the the ones by Kinzer I mentioned up there as well, but I'll put yeah. your recommendations. The uh, the Reign of Terror was by, you said, Spencer Ackerman? Spencer Ackerman, and and uh, the Jakarta Method was by uh, uh, Vincent, Vincent Bevins. Bevins. Okay, great. Do you have any uh, upcoming projects you want to plug? My main thing at the moment is my newsletter. Um, it's called The Racket. Uh, named for Smedley Butler's War is a Racket, among other things. Um, you can find it at theracket.news. Um, and uh, th- that's the main thing. Uh, any 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 further uh, announcements, I will I will almost definitely be be, be announcing uh, on there. Not so much on 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 Twitter. I think I'm I'm starting to I'm starting to, to, to migrate away. Yeah. Okay. So, so the racket. Yeah. Um, well, that was my next question is where where can people find you? So uh, I'll I'll put a link to the racket as well. You said that's at some point I thought that was on Substack, but you you moved away. It's a, it's your own uh, website now. It's it's still, it's still hosted by Substack. I just have I just have my own URL. Got it. Um, but yeah, and I, I I'm you know social media wise, like I'm I'm cats on earth on basically at any Instagram, TikTok, you know, and that other site. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm on all of them pretty much with that name. So okay. Time, really. I'll put that there as well, just in case you, you do decide to post something now and then. Yeah. Uh, my guest today has been author and journalist, Jonathan M. Katz, and his book once again is Gangsters for Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Jonathan, thank you once again for joining me on Ideas Having Sex. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ideas Having Sex, where we have stimulating conversations on social science, philosophy, history, politics, and more. If you're a fan of what I do, please take a minute to subscribe to the show and to give us a rating and review wherever you listen. I'm Chris Kaufman. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.